Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this good word from the book of Acts. Thank you for the continuing way that you are speaking to us and our situation today. Thank you for this, this word that's alive, that's vibrant. And we ask once again that you would open up our hearts to your living truth, that you would speak in potent ways that address our lives. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Well, the verdict is in. We live in what many are calling the loneliest era of human history. Study after study are showing again and again of this quiet epidemic that is just covering the Western world, and it is that of loneliness. Our culture is increasingly feeling anonymous, isolated, unknown, and unloved. The Surgeon General of the U.S., until recently, I think till about 2017, uh, uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy, Surgeon General of the U.S., said, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Profound. People are calling loneliness a public health crisis in the West because persistent loneliness is attached to reduced lifespans equal to that of heavy drinking. Persistent loneliness, we're told, is equal to that of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It is associated with greater instances of cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression, anxiety, and yet, loneliness is so underreported. Loneliness is the longing that we dare not speak. People can easily talk about how busy they are, right? Because, you know, if you're a busy person, you must be important or successful. But to say I'm lonely, I need a friend, that carries with it the whiff of failure. As one journalist wrote, every lonely adult is a kid eating at a bench by herself for lunch. And so every study, every article that you read about this comes to the same conclusion that Scripture does, that Genesis 2 verse 18 says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Genesis, you know, tells the story of God creating, forming, fashioning this world. It is a beautiful poem of how God created this world with design and beauty and goodness. And the repeated phrase throughout the whole creation poem is good, good, good. God blesses this goodness of this material world, of your body, of this life. It is a good thing. And yet, in the middle of all this created goodness, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Which is fascinating. This happens before the fall. This happens before sin invades and violates and vandalizes all the goodness of God. And in the good creation of wholeness, God names something that is not good. The loneliness of a human person. This is an important thing for us because here's what it means. It means that the ache that you feel the longing for friendship 
is not because of sin. It is the ache of created goodness. Human beings are created in the image of God, and God is a community. God is a, what we call a trinity, a, f- a friendship of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is enjoying this intimate, connected communion where one, where all the persons are loving and being loved, serving and being served, giving themselves to one another, and being given to. This is the life that God intends all of us to participate in, to enjoy. And so today, if, if you're lonely, if you've experienced that, if, if you've said at some point, I, I want friends or I want deeper sense of friendship, you are not sick. It means you are being true to the creation, your creation as a person. You're created as a person meant to be in personal communion with God and with others. It is not good for us to be alone. So why are we so lonely? Why is it that across Western society, people are so rampantly lonely? One journalist and author and thinker, Andy Crouch, um, observes that in Western culture, what has happened is that we have made a trade. We've made a trade of personhood for freedom, for the pursuit of self-actualization, for power, in, in our desire to sort of bump God out of the scene and in our desire to have life on our own terms, we've traded a personal form of engaging our world with an impersonal form. And this happens all over the place. For instance, everyday example, you're going to the store to get groceries. You go into the store, grab your basket or your cart, do your shopping, go to the checkout line, tap your card at the self-serve station, and you leave without an engagement at all with a person, right? That is not a normal thing. That is a pretty average type of engagement we have. It is unthinkable for so many people of history to have that sort of engagement so impersonal. We've traded personal engagement with our world for an impersonal one. You can see that trade in another area. Think of this. Let me ask you this question. Do you know whose son I am? Do you know whose son I am? I think in this room here, because I don't see my family here, I don't think there's anyone here who knows the names of my parents. And if you do know their names, I bet you don't know who they are. You don't know. If you happen to know that Fred and Jane are my parents, I don't believe anyone here has known them. Why? Why? Because in our modern world, that is a sign of success, strangely enough. That is a sign that you've made it. Because when you are liberated from those stable personal connections with which you started life, you are freed to live life without any constraints, without being known in connected communities. And our modern world says that individualized, that independent life is the good life. But the great irony of our time is that while we are more mobile, more independent, and freer, more informed, more digitally connected, we are more isolated 
and lonely than ever before. And again, as the Bible simply puts it, it is not good for us to be alone. And that judgment of God is good news for us today. Because this loneliness we all feel and share in some way is not the way we're meant to live. The church, us, crazily enough, is God's intent to restore the communion of creation, the place where we can once again experience communion with God and communion with one another. And throughout the book of Acts, as God is shaping his church, we see this new and beautiful community begin to emerge and take shape. And it's a unique community. If you want to know anything about Jesus Christ, we're often directed to look at the church as, as an instance of the life that Jesus calls us to. The church is meant to be the fellowship of the King Jesus and you see that at the very beginning of Acts. Acts chapter 2, we read that the, this early church devoted themselves to fellowship, to a number of other things, but one of them is fellowship, which is this deeply personal interconnectedness of everyone. People from very diverse backgrounds, but connected profoundly. Now that word fellowship, I th that's probably a problematic word. I, I think it is. It's got a churchy feel to it, doesn't it? Um, it's been sort of drained of its real meaning. You know, you talk of fellowship and you think of, well, coffee and cookies in the fellowship hall or something like that. Um, it's a bigger, richer word. And so nowadays people use the word Christian community. And that, that's, I think, not a bad term for it. The experience of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, creates Christian community, this profound interconnectedness. But today I want to use a different word. I'm drawing it from the 12th century, from a monk, Elred of Riveau, who in the 12th century wanted his community to form profoundly intimate relationships. And so he wrote something called spiritual friendships. And I think that's a helpful term. It just might challenge us or, or move us out of our traditional understandings of what fellowship is. Spiritual friendships, which is we are created for communion with God and friendship with others. And the gospel of Jesus Christ restores us to this by not only sending you deeper into communion with God than you ever thought you would go, but it also sends you deeper into the heart of other people's lives, brothers and sisters, giving you uh, an intimacy and depth of relationships beyond anything you thought was quite possible with another human being. This is the intent of God's restoration of that communion in the church. And here in Acts 20, we see a little emblem, a little picture of what that is like. The Apostle Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey now, and he's, he's heading to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to get it. Uh, his life is on the line. He's going to be imprisoned. He may be killed. And along the way, he stops in Miletus, which is near a town called Ephesus, where he had spent two years in focused, intimate relationships with people, forming them in Jesus Christ. And, and what we see now is Paul surrounding himself with friends. In verse 17, while Paul is in Miletus, he says he sends for the elders of the church from Ephesus, which is a distance away, to come to him. He surrounds himself with friends, and they're spending hours together. They're, they're emotionally connecting. They're weeping. They're discussing. They're talking. They're praying. They're worshiping. 
Paul has this need for friends to be surrounded. The need and longing for friends is never a sign of weakness. It is a sign of health, of maturity. It is an echo of God's creation in you, of the image of God in you. And more than ever, it is a profoundly deep good that the gospel equips us to enjoy and to offer to a profoundly lonely world. We desperately need this recovery of spiritual friendship in the church so that we might offer this beautiful gift to the world. Think of the goodness that it offers all of us as a community. We're, we're a church that I'm so grateful has many singles as part of this church, and I am delighted by that. Think of the goodness that this sort of friendship might offer to the singles among us, this gift of solid, substantial spiritual friendships, of, of a kinship, a real genuine kinship uh, that a single can count on, a familial-like bond of, of affection and trust. What a good gift. And it's not just singles. You've got to know that. Because sometimes people who can experience acute loneliness are in marriages as well. Think of a young mother or a young father who have just had a child. You talk to those young mothers or fathers, they'll often report that they can experience uh, a profound sense of isolation. And what a young parent needs is a community of devoted friends around them. I think we, we need to demythologize marriage in the church. I think we've, we've given it the myth of being the, the end-all of community for people, and it's not. Marriages crumple under the weight of expectation that my spouse is going to fulfill every relational, emotional need of me. And so how can we create communities? How can we create this space for a man to have a companion relationship with other men, even as they're in a marriage, or a woman to have these deep friendships with other women, even as they're in a marriage? We've got to start thinking creatively about this. We don't have much time today. I know it's a full service. I think I probably want to blog a few, just so that we can unpack some of the deeper implications of this. But here in Acts 20, what we do is we catch a beautiful picture of what this spiritual friendship is like. Paul, right here with his friends, what are they doing? They're kneeling before God and worshiping. They are people bonded together in a common shared faith and devotion. Whenever two people give their hearts to Jesus Christ, they are becoming friends, no matter where they have come from or who they are, no matter who they used to be. People utterly unlike one another from very different parts and segments of society, kneeling together before one God, and so becoming friends. When Christians come together, we come as people who have already been united to one another through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's where Christian friendship emerges out of. And that makes friendship between people who you wouldn't likely see anywhere else happen in the church. The Bible says that over and over again, that the test of our knowledge of grace is our capacity to build relationships, to love people who are radically different from us. And that the experience is that you find yourself not just tolerating and not just getting along with, but coming to love the people 
that before you never would have wanted to have anything to do with. But now, centered on Jesus Christ, living out that life, friendship emerges, companionship. And these friendships are, are the sharing in the common life of Jesus Christ. That word fellowship, koinonia, it literally means sharing. It is sharing a commitment to Christ. We've already seen that, but it's more than that. It, it, it's sharing of your life, of your emotions, your possessions. Look here at this story on the beach. What are they doing? They're weeping. They're together embracing one another. They're clinging to one another. They don't, it's like Paul had to tear himself away from them. They're sharing their thing because they have shared their life, their homes, their hospitalities. And spiritual friendships emerge out of that sharing of faith and sharing of life. And then really practically, sharing of our time. There was a recent University of Kansas study done. And it was reported in the Atlantic Monthly. And this study showed the time requirements for deep friendships to occur. And they said it takes 50 hours for you and I to move, 50 hours of socializing, 50 hours of meeting, hanging out with people, to move from an acquaintance to a casual friend. So if you, you've got a couple acquaintances and you think, I want a friendship, 50 hours is roughly the time frame. And then an additional 40 hours to move from a casual friend to a close friend, to a real friend. And then a total of 200 hours to move to what you might call a really deep, close friendship. This is the, the, just the practical reality of friendship. We need to give each other the gift of time. This is what the elders of Ephesus did, right? They took time to travel to where Paul was. They carved out time in their schedules. They made themselves available. I think that's maybe the better word, this sense of availability to others. This is the embodied reality of how friendships occur, being available, making, sharing the gift of our time that is so critical to these spiritual friendships. The great enemy today of friendships is busyness. Right? We fill our lives with so much. What we need to do is, is, is leave some white space in our world so that we might write the story of friendship with others. And think of, think of the opportunities too. Think of this. The opportunities of friendship occur when we begin to organize our lives making room for friendships. Friendship always emerges out of some regular practice, some habitual meeting, engaging with others. Paul, for two years, spent time with these Ephesians, regularly meeting, gathering, deepening their relationships with one another, sharing meals. How are we doing that? How are we organizing our lives in a repeated way where friendships can then begin to emerge? You know one of the most practical ways you can do that? Come to church. Really, organize your week around a Sunday worship service. And in doing this, in this regular practice of going to church, you're going to situate yourself in a place where you're going to engage, potentially, with others. Where possibly after the service, you can go for a coffee or for lunch together. But where you're interacting, where you're gathering to strengthen and nourish these friendships. Which is why Scripture says, do not neglect the practice of going to church. Because we have been brought together by Jesus Christ to be more than people who just gather on a day, but to be the company of friends of Jesus. There's a myth in our world 
and it goes this way. There's no closer bond than that between siblings and spouses, between children and parents. And the myth says that friendships really need to take a back seat to blood ties. And we reduce deep kinship to biology. Not so in the church. Where, as Acts shows us, God is creating a new community. And one of the great joys of following Jesus is that you inherit a new family. These people who stood up here this morning, they have received a new family. You have received new family members. A new family that is won by Christ's blood and that in its best moments offers us the, the deepest, richest sense of kinship better than any biological or blood tie. Whose son am I? Whose daughter are you? We are the beloved children of Almighty God, our Father, creator of heaven and earth. We are friends of Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters together. And we are not meant to be alone. We are meant to come to the family feast because there is a place at the table for all. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the beautiful, practical, lived-out reality of faith that we enjoy in friendship, simple friendship. We take it for granted, God, but what a gift this is of this tie that we have in Jesus Christ, grounded in the blood of Christ, that makes us blood brothers and sisters together. Thank you for the friendship we enjoy in Jesus Christ, how he gave his life so that we might come into this new relationship. Thank you, God, for befriending us and empowering us so that we might be like Jesus, so that we might befriend others who are so unlike us. God, we pray that you would teach us what it is to be true friends, a community of communion with you and with others. And may that, may that be a the beautiful gift that we offer to a desperately lonely world. God, grow us, Lord. Bring more into this fellowship of the King. Restore in us the beauty of Christian friendship, communion with you, communion with others, life as it was meant to be, so that no one would do life alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.